I'm going to read verses 1 to 24. Hear now the reading again of the Lord's words. There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abael, the son of Zeror, son of Bacorath, the son of Aphiah, a Benjaminite, a man of wealth. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward he was taller than any of the people. Now the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. So Kish said to Saul his son, Take one of the young men with you and arise and go and look for the donkeys. And he passed through the hill country of Ephraim, passed through the land of Shalisha, but they did not find them. And they passed through the land of Sha'alim, but they were not there. Then they passed through the land of Benjamin, but they did not find them. And when they came to the, came to the land of Zuth, Saul said to his servant who was with him, Come, let us go back, lest my father cease to care about the donkeys and become anxious about us. But he said to him, Behold, there is a man of God in this city, and he is a man who is held in honor. All that he says comes true. So now let us go there. Perhaps he can tell us the way that we should go. And Saul said to his servant, But if we go, what can we bring the man? For the bread in our sacks is gone, and there is no present to bring to the man of God. What do we have? The servant answered Saul again, Here I have with me a quarter of a shekel of silver, and I will give it to the man of God to tell us our way. Formerly in Israel, when a man went to inquire of God, he said, Come, let us go to the seer. For today's prophet was formerly called a seer. And Saul said to his servant, Well said, come, let us go. So they went to the city where the man of God was. As they went up the hill to the city, they met a young woman, met young women coming to draw water and said to them, Is the seer here? And they answered, He is. Behold, he is just ahead of you. Hurry, he has come just now to the city because the people have a sacrifice today on the high place. As soon as you enter the city, you will find him before he goes up to the high place to eat. For the people will not eat till he comes, since he must bless the sacrifice. Afterward, those who are invited will eat. Now go up, for you will meet him immediately. So they went up to the city. And as they were entering the city, they saw Samuel coming toward them on his way to the high place. Now the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel, Tomorrow, about this time, I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines. For I have seen my people because their cry has come to me. And when Samuel, Saul, Saul, the Lord told him, Here is the man of whom I spoke to you. He it is who will restrain my people. Then Saul approached Samuel in the gate and said, Tell me, where is the house of the seer? Samuel answered Saul, I am the seer. Go up before me to the high place, for today you shall eat with me. And in the morning I will let you go and will tell you, all that is on your mind. As for your donkeys that were lost three days ago, do not set your mind on them, for they have been found. And for whom is all that is desirable in Israel? Is it not for you and all your father's house? Saul answered, Am I not a Benjaminite from the least of the tribes of Israel? And is not my clan the humblest of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? Why then have you spoken to me in this way? And Samuel took Saul and his young man, and brought them into the hall, and gave them a place at the head of those who had been invited, who were about thirty persons. Samuel said to the cook, Bring the portion I gave you 
of which I said to you, put it aside. So the cook took up the leg and what was on it and set them before Saul. And Samuel said, see, what was kept is set before you, eat, because it was kept for you until the hour appointed that you might eat it with the guests. And so Saul ate with Samuel that day. We'll stop there. Let's pray and ask the Lord's blessing upon our time. Lord, we thank you for the comfort that is your word and the ability to know who our God is, what he requires of us, what he has done for us, and what he has given to us. We thank you that you have not left us to wander in darkness. We ask, Lord, that now you would send your spirit to do the very thing which you purpose him to do, which is to illuminate your word, that we might have a better insight into the nature of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask your blessing upon this time now for your son's sake. Amen. Amen. Well, in uh, chapter 8, of course, we saw Israel demanding a human king. And as we explored their demand for a king like the nations, we saw that such a demand was actually a rejection of their status as a holy people, right? So having failed to conquer the land and to receive the promised king of blessing, who was intended to build God's house and to uh, usher the people into the presence of God's glory, Israel decided that they were content to live outside of God's typological Sabbath rest. And instead, they were desirous of adopting the same existence and fate of all of the nations. And in their mind, the fastest way to achieve that kind of transformation from a holy people to a, a common nation was to set up a common king. That's what we saw in the first half of chapter 8. And then the second half of chapter 8, we examined God's response to Israel's demand. And through Samuel, we saw that the Lord of glory informed Israel that he planned to acquiesce to their request and to give them a king like all the nations. And so last time we took an opportunity to examine what are the kings of the nations actually like. And through examples of men such as Lamech and Pharaoh and the king of Assyria, we saw that the rulers of this age take an office that God has instituted to be yielded in service to the people and in submission to his law, and they instead use it to aggregate power and wealth and glory and dominion and kingdoms for themselves. And they do so through cruel tyranny, violent warfare, and a demand for absolute allegiance. Complete selfishness. That is the way of the kings of the earth. And that is now what Israel can expect for their rejection of God and his king. And we concluded last time by contrasting the ways of this judgment king that God announces with the ways of God's true king, the Lord Jesus, the one who is the humble servant king who emptied himself of all visible glory in order to bring sinners like us into God's heavenly Sabbath rest. So then, where do we go from here? Well, chapter 8 ended with the people persistently demanding to have this king in spite of God's warning and with God telling Samuel, very well, obey their voice and make them a king. And understand the logic of chapter 9, today's text. You have to think a little bit more about that ending from chapter 8 and some of the questions that it might raise in somebody's mind. God had made it very clear that Israel's demand for this common king was in contradiction 
to his desire that they should be a holy people communing with him in, their sanct- in God's sanctuary. And that to have such a king was uh, not for their ultimate good. And so Israel is kind of like a child demanding to have something from their parents that their parents know is dangerous. Now, if your five-year-old came to you demanding that he have uh, his very own nine-millimeter handgun for his personal use and that he would not be content without it, and if after having fully explained to your child the dangers of his having such a weapon, your five-year-old simply responded by repeating his demand again, which of you would say, oh, okay, you really want it? Well, in that case, I'll, I guess I'll give it to you. I trust that none of you would do that. And yet, on the surface, someone who is not intimately acquainted with the God of the Bible and with biblical doctrine might come to the end of chapter 8 and on a superficial reading say, that's kind of what it seems like God is doing here. He tells them, no, it's contrary to his will. It will be bad for them. And yet after they just keep repeating the demand, he seemingly says, okay, then you may have it. And so someone may be tempted to ask, who is actually in charge here? Is God sovereign over all of his creation or does he yield himself to every whim of his creature? Is this God really the sovereign God of all eternity? And the answer given by chapter 9 is an emphatic, yes, he is. Chapter 9 is an exceptionally pointed display of the wisdom and the power of God in his disposal of all the affairs of his creation. And so we're going to exegete chapter 9 under the general theme of God's sovereignty. Now, I've gone through and divided the text up into six categories or six spheres in which we see God very clearly exercising sovereignty. And here's the list of all six. First, we will look at the sovereignty of God in common grace or common mercy. Second, the sovereignty of God in nature. Third, the sovereignty of God in man's decisions. Fourth, the sovereignty of God over time. Fifth, the sovereignty of God in revelation. And sixth, the sovereignty of God in sanctifying grace. Now, of those six, we are only going to cover the first one today. I hope to do the last five altogether in the next sermon. We're going to cover the first one, and that would be the sovereignty of God in common grace or in common mercy. So then, let's go to the exposition. We're going to look at God's sovereignty in common mercy. And the verses we're going to look at are roughly chronological in how they flow through the text, but we will have to jump around just a little bit. First, God, as we said, is going to give the people a king. That's what he mentioned at the end of chapter 8. And chapter 9's intention is obviously to introduce us to this person that God has chosen to be king. But remember, God promised that he would give Israel a king like all the other nations, a cruel man, a man of war, a man of selfishness, and one whose reign would bring in heartache and suffering for all of Israel. So I want you to imagine that this is your very first time reading the Bible. You do not know about men like David, Saul, and Jonathan. All you know is that you just got done reading chapter 8 and this description of a horrible, wicked king. And if I told you that the next chapter is going to introduce you to that person, would you not have some expectations of what this man is going to be like? Would you not expect that by the time you got done reading this chapter... You would be able to say, I can see why God chose that man as a king of curses. He's awful. And yet, what we're going to find is that that's not how the Bible initially presents Saul to us. 
And so to see that, let's look at how the text portrays Saul's initial life and character. Look with me at verse 1. I want you to consider, first of all, his economic environment. Verse 1 says, There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, the son of Bacorah, the son of Aphiah, a Benjaminite, a man of wealth. And he had a son whose name was Saul. So we have Saul's immediate genealogy presented to us. His father's name is Kish. And we are told that Kish is a man of great wealth. And we get an example of some of this wealth in the next few verses when we read that Kish had numerous donkeys. They say, how does that show us wealth? We don't associate donkeys with wealth in our modern world. But at this time, in this time period, you would really only need multiple donkeys if you had a fairly large amount of land that needed to be kept up. Donkeys were kind of like the tractor of the ancient world. They were the muscle that pulled the plows and that would move heavy loads. And you can think of poor Israelites. They would probably not have a donkey. Why? Because they didn't have much land that needed to be kept up. The middle-class Israelites, if we can use that term, may have had just one donkey, but the larger the farm that you had, the more muscle, the more donkeys that you needed. And so we know that Saul's family was wealthy because he had a lot of land to keep up. Now, how did they get this land? Well, the text doesn't say explicitly, but I think we can actually uh, discern the source of their wealth by considering the tribe that they were from. The text tells us that they were Benjaminites. Now, if you think about it, 1 Samuel, this story, occurs at the end of the time period of the judges' ruling. And at the end of the book of Judges, you may remember that there was a civil war within Israel where all the tribes got together and fought against one tribe in particular, and that was the tribe of Benjamin. And we are told in the book of Judges that at the beginning of this war, Benjamin had 26,000 men fighting, but that over 25,000 of them perished in the war, and that only 600 were able to escape and to return back to their land. So think about what that means. Benjamin, the actual territory, the physical land, did not get reduced in size. It's still the same allotment. But you go from having 26,000 men splitting this land and their families to now only 600. And so for the survivors of this war, they are now splitting all this land amongst a much smaller number of people, which means that they all have more land, which made them quite wealthy. Their families were probably rich for many generations as a result of this. And Saul belongs to such a line within Benjamin. And so he has grown up with a lot of land a lot of wealth, and a lot of possessions. That's his economic environment. Next, notice his physical features. Before the text tells us anything about his character, it emphasizes his physical appearance. In verse 2, we read that Saul was a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. So he's very attractive. In fact, he's the most handsome in all of Israel. Now, yes, Israel's not a massive society, but we're still talking about many thousands of men that he's being compared to. And he's the most attractive of thousands of men, and that is notable. And part of the reason for that is his height. Now, just to be blunt, you don't normally see men who are five feet tall gracing the cover of uh, fitness magazines, even in our modern time, not because they can't have a handsome face necessarily, but because when society judges beauty, they don't just usually want a man with a handsome face, but they would like for that face to be put on a six foot three inch frame 
right? They want the whole package of handsomeness as the world defines it. And the text emphasizes over and over again that Saul is the full package, physically speaking. It repeats it three different times. So not only is Saul a man with lots of money, he is also a man of great attractiveness. Next, notice his religious life. We know about his money and about his looks, but how about his religion? We'll jump down to verse 6, and we get, I think, a major hint in that verse. After he and his servant have been uh, searching for these donkeys, we'll return to the donkeys next sermon, they come to a city where they need guidance, and the servant suggests that they go and seek Samuel's help. But what's interesting is that Saul seems to really have no idea who Samuel is. First notice in verse 6 that Saul is unaware that Samuel is even in this city that they have come to. It's the servant who has to tell him that Samuel is there. Saul was about to go home, but the servant tells him that Samuel is here. Now, it would be one thing if Saul knew who Samuel was, but just didn't know where he was located at that point in time. That'd be one thing. But it seems like Saul doesn't even know who Samuel is or even know his name. Notice the servant doesn't say to him, Samuel is in this city. He says to him, there is a man of God in this city. Now, if you and I were walking outside of a small town and the president of the United States happened to be giving a speech there that day, and if I were to say to you, behold, there is a political figure in this town. Maybe we should stop in and go and see what he has to say. You would probably say to me, you mean the, the president, President Biden? Why, did, why didn't you just say that? Every, we know who that is. Why would you use such a generic term? The only reason I would use a term like politician is if I was talking to someone who had no, no concept of American politics, who didn't know what a U.S. president was, much less the specific man in that office. So the servant seems to know that Saul has no idea who Samuel is. And so he says, a man of God, rather than his name. Now that should seem strange to us. How could Saul not know who Samuel was? Remember, in chapter 7, we saw that Samuel spent many years going around the country uh, on a preaching circuit, right? He was very publicly active. Uh, through him, God had saved Israel from the hand of the Philistines. We saw that in chapter 7. He was a man of renown, and yet somehow Saul is ignorant of him. And you know what that shows us? That Saul is an especially secular man, and he belongs to an especially secular family within Israel. They were a family of great wealth. And they had many earthly affairs that needed to be attended to. And as men throughout history have discovered, wealth is not free. It has to be maintained, and it has to constantly be cared for in order to uh, continue its existence. Whether it be men in this time who had much land that had to be constantly cared for in order to, uh, to make it fruitful and prosperous, or whether it's the modern man who has to constantly be tracking his stock portfolios to make sure he's getting his annual 15% return on his investment. Wealth takes time and attention. And the man of wealth very often does not have time to attend to his own soul. And Saul's ignorance of religious affairs within Israel and its leader Samuel is the fruit of probably generations of neglect of spiritual matters within his very wealthy household. There was simply no time in Kish's house to attend Samuel's sermons, no time to inquire about the well-being of God's ark, no time to study the history of God's works in Israel because there were fields that needed to be profited from and there was money to be made. 
So those are the first aspects of Saul's life that the text wants us to be aware of. He's wealthy, he's handsome, and he's spiritually indifferent and ignorant. Now, given that description of Saul, what kind of character would you expect the man to have? If I told you that I met a young man whose daddy was very wealthy, who was exceptionally good-looking in the judgment of the women, who could care less about the Word of God, you would probably tell me, well, no doubt this guy is self-absorbed, he's entitled, he's lazy, he's probably a total jerk to other people, and the odor of arrogance probably just spews forth off of him. After all, we're supposed to be looking in this chapter for the king that God mentioned in chapter 8, who's going to be a curse upon the people. And everything we've seen so far about Saul would seem to be setting us up to find an absolutely wicked man who, if just given a little bit of power, would be an obvious tyrant. Yet when we dig in a little bit further, that's seemingly not what we find at all. So now let's look at Saul's character. The first feature of Saul's character that I want you to notice is found in verse 3. Now the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. And so Kish said to Saul, his son, Take one of the young men with you and arise and go look for the donkeys. So his father gives him a task. Now Saul, as we said, is a rich kid within this society. And yet when his father gives him an order that's going to require him to put aside his plans and to go on a very uh, arduous and difficult journey in behalf of his family farm for multiple days, he seems to go without any grumbling or complaining. The father gives him a command. And the next thing we read in the text is he's on his way. He's out doing exactly what his father told him to. Now, we know that many spoiled children are not required to do any work. And that after they've gone for years in their household without having to do much work, when their parents do decide to give them some kind of order, very often they will uh, scoff and whine and drag their feet, and they just cannot believe that their parents think that they have the right to tell them what to do with their time and their energy, but not Saul. He seems to go without a fuss. And so the first thing we see about Saul's character is that he is obedient and submissive to his father. Now, that's a good quality. That doesn't seem like the quality of a tyrant. Next, notice Saul's diligence and work ethic in verse 4. He passed through the hill country of Ephraim, and he passed through the land of Shalisha, but they did not find them. And they passed through the land of Shalim, but they were not there. And then they passed through the land of Benjamin, but did not find them. Again, imagine how tedious of a task this would be. Donkeys are not exceptionally large animals. They are not elephants, right? And so if they get loose and wander, there are almost unlimited places that they could go to hide. Finding them would be almost like finding a needle in a haystack as soon as they get off of your land. Imagine if I told you, hey, there's two or three donkeys on the loose in Alexander County somewhere right now, and I want you to go by foot, you cannot use a car, and I want you to go track them down. You would say, where do I even begin? How do I even know where to start? I mean, I I could walk for days and have no chance of finding them potentially. Saul would have to stop at every farm, in every field, in every thicket, in every wooded area just to see if the donkeys happen to be there. And they're not humans. He can't just call out really loud and expect a response. He has to be right on top of them in order to find them. And when you don't find them on day one, what do you have to do? You have to sleep outside in the elements. And then you're constantly going to be having to to find new sources of water to keep up your strength so that you don't get too tired. And after your food has run out, you're going to have to search for more food to keep the journey going. Uh, The the territory of Benjamin, if you study it, is exceptionally hilly uh, and mountainous. So this is an arduous task. That's the point. 
And yet in verse 4, it seems like he just keeps going. He went to this territory, weren't there. So he went to look for them here. They weren't there, so he went to another territory. The Lord commands men to work with all of their might. And Saul seems to embody that uh, quality of thoroughness and diligence in carrying out his work. And even when he does decide that they've been gone for a long, long time, they've given it a good effort, and the donkeys are still nowhere to be found, his decision to return home does not seem primarily motivated by selfishness, but by a consideration of his father. In verse 5, we read this. Saul said to his servant who was with him, Come and let us go back, lest my father cease to care about the donkeys and become anxious about us. So he's concerned about his father's mindset and his father's emotional well-being. So not only is he submissive and obedient to his father and diligent in his work, he's also courteous as well. And if that weren't enough to speak highly of his character, it even seems like he's an externally humble young man. Bring him down to verse 21. When Samuel tells him that he will eat the feast at the head of the table, Saul responds by saying, Am I not a Benjaminite from the least of the tribes of Israel? And is not my clan the humblest of the clans of Benjamin? Why then have you spoken to me in this way? Now, I can hear what's going on in the back of many of your minds. False humility. False humility, right? It's all an act. But you could say that, I suppose, but I don't think that's really the way the text is intending to present it to us, especially in light of all the other commendable features of his character that it's already given to us. Now, certainly, there are many haughty, selfish, and spoiled young men who would not even bother having gone through this journey in the first place or faking humility at this point. So Saul doesn't seem to have an outsized view of himself. And in fact, I would submit, if this were the only passage we had about Saul in the Bible, there would probably be a lot of sermons in church history lauding Saul as this wonderful, humble, godly young man whom we should all seek to imitate in our lives, who loved the Lord and sought to walk with him. But of course, if you know your Bible, it's not the only thing we're going to see out of young Saul. As we work through this book in particular, we're going to encounter a lot of wicked things that Saul is going to do. And I would assert that the clear testimony of Scripture is that the man we're looking at right here is unregenerate and still in his sins. I think at one point I heard Ben say that uh, he was a, at a church one time where a, a man either gave a sermon or a series of sermons attempting to argue that Saul uh, was a Christian and was born again. And I thought to myself, that's insane. I mean, he is clearly presented in 1 Samuel as like the textbook antichrist principle, the, the uh, opponent of the seed of the woman. He's not converted, and yet I imagine that part of the reason why somebody could give a sermon trying to argue that Saul was converted was that he could look at a chapter like this and he could notice all the same commendable character traits that we've pulled out of it so far. And so here's where we encounter something of a quandary that runs through Scripture. At least it seems like it on the surface. The Bible tells us that men are wicked, that they are evil, that they are totally depraved, that they have no good thing in them, that they come forth from the womb speaking lies, that none of them does good, not even one, that they are haters of God, conceived in sin, inventors of evil, rebellious, unclean, altogether worthless, and do not have the slightest degree of the fear of God before their eyes. And yet we can encounter a man like Saul whose life will clearly testify that he is unregenerate and that all of those descriptions that I just said are applicable to him. And yet we can come to this early point in his life and we can come away thinking, wow, 
not only does he seem to not be wicked, he actually appears to be acting righteously. Now, how is that possible? Well, it's possible because of a biblical doctrine that has historically been given the name common grace or common mercy. I'll try and use the term common mercy more because it's a little bit less controversial. Let's step out just uh, for two or three minutes out of 1 Samuel, and I want to just look briefly at the nature of common mercy in the Bible, and then we'll come back and, and look at Saul some more. Let me give you a brief definition, and then I'll present you with a couple of biblical texts to support it. Common mercy is the power of God exercised in non-salvific ways to sustain the world in the post-fall age. We've touched on some of this in the past. Common mercy is the basic substructure upon which God has built the post-fall world. It provides benefits to believers and unbelievers alike. That's why we call it common. Now, there are many aspects to God's common mercies over His creation. For example, there are physical aspects to His common mercy. Jesus said, God sends His rain and His sunshine upon the just and the unjust. Those are physical things, and they God uses them to provide... Uh, the means of existence and sustenance to both the righteous and the wicked. There are sociological, to adopt a modern term, components to God's common mercy. As we mentioned several months ago, institutions like marriage and the family and the magistrate and vocational labor, all of these things provide stability and they allow for life to continue. And there's also a directly spiritual, I didn't think of a better word, a directly spiritual component to common mercy. And what I mean by that is there is the direct uh, intervention of the Spirit of God operating on the hearts of even unregenerate men to restrain their sin and to keep evil in check. And we're going to see how God uses all three of these in the life of Saul to shape him. But first, let me just show you uh, this biblical doctrine from two texts of Scripture. And then I'll give you a quote from Owen, because we like Owen. Consider first Exodus 24, uh, 34, 24. There God tells Israel, No one shall covet your land when you go up to appear before the Lord your God three times a year. No one shall covet your land when you appear before the Lord three times a year. God's speaking to the Israelites, and He's given them a command. Three times a year, the men have to abandon, if we can use that term in a non-negative way, abandon their family and their households, and they all have to go up and assemble themselves in a single place at the Lord's temple in Jerusalem. So three times a year, all the men of a society have left their homes and their possessions for an extended period. And if they are faithful to do that every year, the nations around them are not going to fail to notice. They're going to notice something like that. And if the normal course of wicked men's hearts is allowed to continue and play out, what's going to happen? Those wicked men are going to say, hey, the Israelites leave all their stuff and their wives and their children three times a year. It's literally defenseless. Let's go and let's take their wives and children and make them slaves, and we'll capture all their stuff, we'll burn their villages, and we can potentially take over Israel. Now, men, if God gave you this command, would you not have a little bit of fear and trepidation in carrying it out? Your family seems to be at stake here. Would you be a little nervous? And yet God says, if you are faithful to do this, I will make sure that not only will your enemies not come in and take it, but that they won't even have the desire in their hearts to do so in the first place. Now, what does that statement presuppose? That God has the ability to restrain and to determine the desires of even wicked men's hearts. God is not changing their hearts. 
so that they are producing righteous desires that proceed from faith. Instead, he is restraining their sin. And how does he do that? God does not have a physical arm that he reaches into the unbeliever's heart with and starts turning the gears to make it do what he wants. He accomplishes this work in the hearts of unregenerate men through the same means that he uses to work in any man's heart, the Holy Spirit. You say, well, I thought the work of the Holy Spirit was in, uh, uh, in a man's heart was to raise him from the dead and to give him uh, saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is one of the works of the Holy Spirit in men's hearts. But the Holy Spirit's work is not limited to regeneration and sanctification in the heart of a believer. You say, well, show me a text that says that the Spirit of God has some kind of work going on in unregenerate men. Genesis chapter 6 and verse 3. In Genesis 6, 3, God is preparing to destroy the world through a flood. And he begins by saying, My spirit shall not abide in, or you could translate it, strive with man forever. His days shall be 120 years. My spirit shall not abide in or strive with man forever. Now think about that statement. He says that his spirit will not abide in men, which means that he had been abiding in or striving with men before this time. And you can't just say that this is a statement about God's saving work in the hearts of his people prior to the flood because it's the same men who this spirit is said to abide in or strive with that are the ones who are going to be destroyed after the 120-year period. So the spirit is said to somehow be operating amongst unregenerate wicked men in whom was not found a righteous faith like Noah's, and yet these same men are not going to be regenerated. They are going to perish in the flood and spend eternity in hell. That's not saving grace. So what is the Spirit doing? He's doing the same thing he's been doing since the fall, Genesis 3, giving them countless mercies, convicting them of their sin and their natural conscience, and yet as they spurn it, God appoints an end, a limit to the work of the Spirit in their midst, this non-saving work. I know there are other interpretations of that passage. I don't have time to go into them. But the point is that the Spirit of God was at work in a non-saving way amongst men of the old world. Now, whatever term you want to use for that is fine with me up to a certain point. Whether you want to call it grace, mercy, or something else, that's fine. But don't deny a concept by getting hung up over a term. Consider Owen's words here on common grace, common mercy. John Owen says, the best of common grace or gifts that may be in unregenerate men are merely the products of the providence of God ordering all things in general unto his own glory and to the good of them who will be heirs of salvation. But they, that is the works of God in these wicked men's hearts, are not the fruits of electing eternal love, nor designed to be means for the infallible attainment of eternal salvation. So according to Owen, this work of the Spirit of God in the hearts of unregenerate men only serves to restrain them Excuse me, it serves to restrain them and to give them knowledge and gifts that we see them use all around us, right? There are men who are very gifted in in doing many different things, even as unregenerate people. But this work cannot be trusted as a means of obtaining external righteousness, or excuse me, eternal righteousness before men. And notice, for Owen, the point of God doing this is ultimately so that the works of these unregenerate men may serve the purpose of being a blessing to those who will be heirs of eternal life. So then, with that in mind, let's return back to 1 Samuel 9, and let's look at God's common mercies in the life of Saul. How do we see this sovereign, non-saving work of God manifested in Saul's life? Well, first, 
a very simple observation. Notice the role that the physical aspects of God's common mercy have played in shaping Saul's life. Remember, Jesus said God sends his rain on the just and the unjust, and that makes possible things like farming and agriculture. And guess what? Saul's life has been spent where? On a farm. He's grown up learning how to work and how to labor and how to produce crops and animal foods. He's contributed to the maintenance of his family and the Israelite society as a whole, and he's probably learned a great work ethic through doing all of this. And all of that is only possible because of God's common mercy in allowing the world to continue and allowing the crops to grow up and in providing all of the physical, the biological, and the geological infrastructure that is necessary for Saul to labor. And that has shaped many aspects of Saul's character. He's not a lazy glutton as a result. Second, notice the sociological impacts of common mercy upon Saul. I don't like that I'm using that term, but I couldn't think of a better one. Saul has a family. He has a family. They may be unregenerate, but he still has one. And so he has grown up with an authority structure in his life. He has a mother and he has a father. And they've probably used the rod on him to some degree and taught him that Saul is to respect their commands and to render obedience to them. Even if the parents' motives were purely selfish in making Saul obey them, just so he wouldn't annoy them as much and their lives would be easier, even if they were purely selfish in their motives, they were still having an impact on Saul. Saul was not a child left off to himself to bring shame upon his mother. And we see the fruits of that in his quick obedience to his father when he tells him to go look for the donkeys and in his concern for his father's anxiety levels. Now, those are commendable qualities, and God instilled them in Saul through the institution of the family, which he established for that very purpose. Now, the family unit is not producing inherent righteousness within Saul that will give him self-justifying merit before God's courtroom. But it does serve to check and to restrain his sin and to allow him to walk at least externally in conformity to many aspects of God's law. And God is the one who is doing this. God is the one who is doing this through his appointed means in the life of this man. What we have seen from Saul's character is not a natural product of his Adamic nature. And the only way that anything is ever going to act contrary to its nature is if there is a God in the heavens who has a purpose in causing a thing to act contrary to its nature and who possesses the power and the wisdom to bring it about. And that shows us that God, excuse me, that shows us how God used common mercies in Saul's life. But now I want you to consider this. The purpose of God in Saul's common mercy. I want you to see how God uses his power in common mercies to accomplish his will. Why would God work in this way in Saul's young life? We know he's not uh, a son of Christ. We know he's still a son of Adam and that the depths of evil lie dormant within his soul. We know he's going to become a ravenous murderer and a persecutor of the seed of the woman. So given all that, why would God allow Saul to begin his young life with what appears to be so many admirable qualities? I think the answer is given to us in verse 16. There God says to Samuel, Tomorrow, about this time, I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. He will save my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I have seen my people because their cry has come to me. Now, wait a second. 
In the last chapter, God kept emphasizing how this king would be a curse to the people and a wicked man. So when, uh, when God describes this man to Samuel, would we not expect him to say something like this, Samuel, tomorrow I will send you a man who's going to be king. He shall burden my people and abuse them and be a snare to them. All of the things that God said in the last chapter the king would be. But God doesn't say that to Samuel. Rather than abusing the people, God says, He will save my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I have heard their cry. Now Saul all of a sudden sounds like a king of blessing, not a king of curses. So which is it? It's both. And that's the whole point. The king will be at one and the same time a curse on them for their sin, but God will also use him to bestow blessings upon the people to accomplish his will. Saul will be, and many of his successors will be, abusive, cruel, and selfish men, but they will also defeat Israel's enemies. The king will take their land and their crops and their sons, but he will also defend that land and fight their battles, just as the people demanded in the last chapter. And you see this all throughout 1 Samuel. When God is speaking publicly to the people about a king, he will bash them and talk about how evil and wicked their desire for a king was and just, just tear them to shreds. But then you get into these private conversations, such as the one here between Samuel and Saul, and God then reveals the blessing side of the kingship. When he's speaking publicly, he lambasts them. But then in private, he shows them that actually the king is going to bring in a limited measure of blessings right alongside the curses. So what does all that mean? That Saul needs to serve two functions simultaneously. He needs to be a blessing and a curse. And therefore, he needs to have two different operations within his soul at one time. He needs to be the seed of the serpent. His basic constitution must be wickedness in order to unleash the fury of God's wrath upon the people. No regenerate man could ever consistently carry out the brutality and the oppression that Saul and many of the subsequent kings will inflict on Israel. I would submit to you that no godly man whose heart has been changed could slaughter all the priests at Nob as Saul is going to do. So his basic constitution has to be iniquity and sin. And yet, God also plans to use this man as a means of sustaining the kingdom of Israel from its surrounding enemies. Israel cannot, I've said this how many times in 1 Samuel, Israel cannot be allowed to perish. They can't be. Their enemies cannot consume them because there is a coming Christ that was promised to Abraham. They must be preserved. And so that means they're going to need a strong leader. They're going to need someone who is possessed of all of the physical, mental, and volitional, the will, powers, to fight war and to lead and to make decisions. And you cannot have a man like that if he is a lazy glutton who has never figured out how to work hard or to lead a disciplined life or to respect others at least enough to work with them to accomplish military victories. In other words, Saul has to have some qualities that make him an apt leader. But there will not be any such qualities in the man Saul if he is left to plunge fully into the depths of his depraved heart. And in this text, God is showing us how through his common mercies, he is forming and fashioning Saul to be a king who could serve as a curse on the people, but who will also lead and preserve them from their enemies. And I want you to see that it's God who is in charge of the exact extent to which Saul's true nature 
is kept in check and the extent to which it is allowed to spill forth for all to see. And the degree to which God allows that interplay to take place is determined solely on the basis of his own will and purposes for that man. The scripture says the king's heart is like a river in the hand of the Lord, right? He turns it whichever way he wills. But that's not just true of kings. That's true of all unregenerate men. That's how God deals with them all. Unregenerate men think that they are the masters of their own goodness and their own virtue and that they are in charge of their own destiny. But what they don't realize is that they are pots in the hand of the potter and that God is wielding them, as he says to the king of Assyria, like an axe in his hand. They think that they have freedom from God by living out their sinful desires. But the joke's on them because there's nothing that they can do that is not a part of God's preordained plan to bring about the glorification of his son as he judges and makes war on the wicked. And so God raises up Saul, much as he did Pharaoh. And there were many things at different points in his life that an outsider could look at and say, that seems to be a very commendable character trait. That seems to be a very fine young man over there. Look at how diligent and obedient he is. We know lots of people who are much worse than Saul. And yet, Saul is in hell. Saul is in hell. And so the doctrine that I want you to take away from this is as follows. The Spirit of God, using various means, sovereignly checks or curbs and releases the sinfulness of man's hearts in order to carry out his plans for redemptive history. Now, for the application, I have just one application. It's very simple. It's very basic. But we need to be reminded of it again and again. Do not trust common mercy to save you. Do not trust common mercy to save you. The basic folly of mankind, as you know, I trust, is that they seek to establish their own righteousness by looking inside of themselves to find goodness and virtue. And because God, as we've seen, does bestow common mercies to some degree on all men, mankind has been able to take that and use it and more easily deceive himself into thinking that there is something inherently righteous within himself. How do people always judge whether they are good people? They compare themselves to others. I don't do the things that someone over there does, therefore I must be inherently better than them. And you know what? At least on the first part of that statement, there are times when they are partially right. Objectively speaking, some people do not commit the same level of grievous, observable, and wicked deeds as their fellow men do. Not everyone has gone on a murderous rampage through their workplace or committed physical adultery as many times as other men and women have. That's true. But the problem comes in when we ask the question, why not? The answer that sinful men give to that is that there's something in me such that I am composed of better moral substance than others. Now, whether they think they were born with it or whether they think it's something that they have cultivated in themselves by their own efforts, it doesn't matter. The answer is always the same. There's something in me that is superior to the moral constitution of those around me. But the scripture that we examine today and the life of Saul and many, many other texts proclaim that this is not true. The scriptures do not deny that there are men 
who act more wickedly than other men do. They don't deny that, nor do they deny that men commit externally moral actions. But the Bible does contradict the unbeliever's interpretation of their actions by insisting that their actions do not come from inherent virtue in themselves, but from God bringing in external curbing upon their wicked hearts. And as we said, he uses many means to do that. He uses a person's upbringing, their family structure, the law written upon their nature, the laws of men, the fear of punishment, and even men's own desire for self-righteousness. God uses men's own desire for self-righteousness as a means of curbing their external evil. God does use all of those things to plug up or to let loose a man's heart as he desires. But in all of this, God is not changing the inherent nature of what is inside that man or that woman. He simply uses and controls it to accomplish His holy will. To give an illustration, picture an unbeliever's nature as a ball, a metal ball that has 10 holes in it. And inside the ball, there is a large amount of noxious, odorous, poisonous gas that is under extremely high pressure. Now, because the ball has holes in it, if you leave it to itself, what's going to happen? It's going to spew forth that odorous and poisonous gas because that's all it has within it. That's an unbeliever in his sinful state. He is uh, totally depraved. But in common mercy, it's as if God takes his hands, his ten fingers, and puts them on the ball and covers up each of the holes. And then he is free at his discretion to lift up a finger or two or four or to put fingers back on. In other words, God is controlling the outflow of the poisonous gas that is within. He controls how much. Now imagine, to make the illustration somewhat absurd, if one of those balls of gas, which only had one finger removed from it and was just letting out a little bit, looked at another ball, which had six fingers removed from it and was spewing forth a lot of gas and thought, wow, I must be cleaner. I must have better stuff within me because that one over there is spewing forth all kinds of vile odors at a high rate, but I don't let out quite so much. Now, you'd say that's foolish. You're not inherently cleaner than the other. It is God who is controlling the outflow, but that is exactly how unbelievers think of themselves. There's more restraint on them, and somehow they think that that means they are intrinsically superior, but they're not any different. They are equally Adamic inside. And so if the moral good, moral good, that unbelievers commit does not come from God changing their nature into one of righteousness, then their actions are not meritorious to salvation in His sight. They will not serve to satisfy God. And so common mercy cannot be trusted as a sure guide to heaven. You cannot merely look at the external actions that you or someone else performs to determine your standing before God. And you say, wait, I thought we were supposed to judge our fruits, right? If we love Him, we will keep His commandments. And as Paul's been preaching, right, Christians are to render gospel obedience. That's actions that flow out. And that's true. But we don't simply look and start with the external actions. That's exactly what the unregenerate man does. We start by judging the motivations and the desires that then come forth in actions. You had better have actions that are in conformity to God's law. 
But the unbeliever is content to stop there. The believer, the child of God wants to know, is my obedience to God's law coming from a desire to please the Lord, not to earn something from him, but because I love him and I love his nature? The unregenerate man knows nothing of that. In judging the fruit of your soul, you start with the affections and you follow them outward to the actions. Now, I want to wind down here by saying something, especially to you younger people in this room. We have several folks, young folks, who I think have expressed a desire to join this church at some point, and probably many more who are maybe thinking about it but haven't said anything. And it's a good thing, right? I'm very happy to hear that. But I have a warning for you. For just about all of you young people, you have grown up in homes with parents who love the Lord, who have been saved by His grace, and who are seeking to teach you the ways of God. That is a blessing that the vast majority of young people in history have not known. It is objectively a blessing. And there is nothing inherently special about you that caused you to be born into that kind of situation that almost all the children throughout history have known nothing of. And so you owe thanks to God for it. But even though this is one of the greatest blessings that you could possibly know, being reared in a godly home, you need to realize that it carries with it a tremendous danger. Because your parents are faithful to use the rod when you sin and to instruct you in God's law and to, I trust, limit the circumstances and opportunities that you have as a young person to be uh, in the midst of scoffers and to be in situations of temptation to sin. Because of all of that, you are probably going to grow up differently and act differently from the young people around you. That's probably going to happen. And the older you get and the more exposure you get to children who are about your age, you're going to notice that they speak differently. And they act differently than you do. And they do things sometimes that you may not even be comfortable with. And when you really start to come into your upper teens, into your lower 20s, you're going to see your peers around you probably doing a lot of what man might call extremely wicked things like drunkenness and fornication and theft and violence against others and drug use and the whole, the whole list. And as you see that, you are probably going to look at your own life and be able to honestly say, I don't do those things things, certainly not to the extent that they do. And that may be true, but it is when you have come to that realization that you don't do all the same things that the other people do, that you've reached the most pivotal point in your young life, because you are either on the cusp of heavenly glory or you are closer to hell than any of those people that you're comparing yourself to, because your response to that observation about your actions compared to others is going to go one of two ways. Either you're going to look within And you're going to realize that just because you don't commit as many externally sinful actions as some of your peers, that when you see in yourself is enough corruption and enough uh, sinful desires and hatred of God to make you realize that it doesn't matter what somebody else over here is or is not doing. I've got enough sin in my own soul to damn me to hell ten times over, and it's going to push you to seek for a perfect obedience to God's law that has to come outside of yourself. And in that moment, that's when you'll reach out to Christ. Or your response may go the other way. As you look at the evil of those around you, some of you in this room may actually end up saying to yourself, that's right, those sinners over there are proof that I am made up of more righteous stuff, and God knows it. 
What was the prayer of the Pharisee? God, I thank you that I am not like that sinner over there. Remember, Jesus told him, the Pharisees, you are like whitewashed tombs and like cups that are clean on the outside but dirty on the inside. Very important. Jesus was not denying that they were white on the outside. He wasn't denying that you could look at them and they didn't commit the same number of observable sins as the prostitutes and the tax collectors and the sinners of the society. They really were, to some extent, washed clean on the outside. But they didn't realize that the reason that they were washed white was because God, in His sovereignty, had used their religious upbringing to restrain the external manifestations of the many sinful desires that were there, but that He had not made them new within. He used their desire to be justified by moral actions to curb the amount of sinful actions they were willing to commit on the outside. But He did not renew their hearts. He did not change them. And they were content with that. They didn't care about having spiritual life poured into their soul and receiving God's righteousness, which was manifested apart from their ability to keep the law in the person of His Son. They rejected Jesus' righteousness in order to cling to common grace righteousness, the external appearance of goodness that had come into their lives simply because God had a purpose in restraining their sin, not because He had converted them to His Son. And Jesus said that they and their followers were twice the sons of hell because of it. Saul was a good son. Saul was more moral than his peers. Saul was obedient. Saul was hardworking. Saul was meek. And Saul is in hell. And that is what you are in danger of replicating if you do not get straight in your mind the difference between God's merciful restraint of the external operations of your sin and saving grace which makes a man to cling to the person of Christ who is the only righteousness that God will ever accept as a means of entering His eternal Sabbath. And if you refuse to get that straight in your mind, then you will be one of the countless souls on Judgment Day who was it turns out, was too bad to make it to heaven, but was also too good to need Christ. Do not trust your own external actions. The heart is deceitful above all things. It wants you to believe that you are good enough to make God your debtor. There is only one way that God has appointed for a man to be righteous before him. It's the shed blood and the obedient life of his perfect son. That's your only hope, young people especially. Do not, do not rest content in the fact that you were brought up a certain way in your homes. You'll go to hell along with every person who was on drugs or any other kind of wicked sin. You'll be in the same place. There's only one way to heaven. Let's pray now and ask that Savior to bless us with conviction of our need for Him. Well, we who are covenant members of this church, we come to the Lord's table every Lord's Day to, be, to receive grace as a reminder that, that God, uh, even though He rebukes and reproves us, He doesn't uh, cast us off, but He invites us then to come to His table and receive grace. And, and the point is to focus our attention upon this work that we talk about all the time, this, this one work that is sufficient to save a sinner. 
and that is the work of Jesus. Climaxing his, his obedience unto his Father and his penal substitutionary death, all of that climaxing at the cross. It's been said, never substitute the work of the Holy Spirit for the work of Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit works in unregenerate men to restrain and to let loose. The Holy Spirit works in regenerate men to sanctify us. None of that will save us. None of that is sufficient to get us into heaven. And so we, we come to the end of the service and we remember, what is the one work that is sufficient to save a sinner? It's the death of Jesus Christ for sinners. Saul was a, both a blessing and a curse in God's providence. Jesus Christ took all of the curse to give us all of the blessing. In John 18, 11, he says, Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? That was the cup of, of God's wrath. And then in 1 Corinthians 10, 16, Paul refers to the cup of the Lord's table as the cup of blessing. Christ says, I'll take the wrath. You take the blessing. He thrusts blessing into our hands because he's taken the wrath. So as the elements are distributed... Contemplate the cross. Even if you're not coming to the Lord's table, contemplate the cross. As he, we, we, we know that He wrestles with his, with his Father in Gethsemane. And He takes that cup, not unwillingly, willfully taking that cup so that He could give us the cup of blessing. Contemplate that work and then we'll come to the table together.